Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Wednesday on the Three Martini Lunch. So glad you are with us. Your stool is right here waiting for you. And we're sponsored today by Figs. Yeah, those are the folks that make those fantastic scrubs and other gear for all the medical professionals that you always appreciated now, though, more than ever. You can head to wearfigs.com, W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S.com, and enter the code MARTINI15 at checkout, and you'll save 15% off for a limited time. So, Jim, we actually go to politics here for our good martini today, one on the Republican side, one on the Democratic side. Uh, Steve King had kind of been a political dead man walking here for a while. He's uh, represented his district in Iowa. Right now it's the fourth district. I think they had a district that they lost after the 2010 census, but uh, he's been there a long time. He won't be there come January, though. He lost his primary to a fellow Republican named Randy Feenstra. Fairly close race, but uh, it was early 2019 where in an interview, uh, Steve King said something to the effect of uh, white supremacy, white nationalist, Western civilization. What do these words even mean anymore? And uh, it certainly gave the impression that uh, he thought that uh, discussion of white supremacy and white nationalism was was overwrought. Uh, he said that that read worse than what he meant, and it was taken out of context. People misunderstood it. Nonetheless, he was stripped of all his committee assignments and was considered to be very vulnerable. He did, in fact, lose last night. And on the Democratic side, out in New Mexico, Valerie Plame. Valerie Plame is uh, also someone who is known for controversial comments. She, of course, is first known for being the wife of Joe Wilson and uh, claiming that the Bush administration went after her after he went public with information uh, contradicting the case for war in Iraq. Uh, she then, many years later, uh, retweeted an article talking about how the Jews start all the wars. And she said, oh, I didn't really mean it that way, but I thought it was interesting. And by the way, all the neocons who want war are Jews. So that didn't go over well. Uh, that became a big issue in her primary campaign, she will not be advancing to the general election in New Mexico. So Jim, two pretty prominent names who won't be on the ballot in November. You know, Greg, this is for all the things that have gone wrong in this past year. And this has been, this has been a, a kick in the crotch in a lot of ways. It's been really good if there's a Congressman King you don't like. <laughs> because Peter King announced he was retiring. So that's that's two fewer kings that will be in a town that should have none of them, uh, metaphorically, I suppose. If your last name is, is King, I don't necessarily have that much of a beef with you. It's just, you know, two of them. Peter King, the former Sports Illustrated sports writer, was perfectly fine. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, like, you know, Steve King. First of all, I remember one of the things that jumped out about Steve King was that he kept the Confederate flag, a small Confederate flag, on his desk. Now, Iowa is not in the South. It was not part of the Confederacy. And it's been in interesting to watch kind of, you know, year by year, month by month. Um, I, my suspicion is that to be a conservative in this country, you have to be willing to, if you, if you want to go along with the crowd and, and you don't like conflict and you don't like people telling you you're wrong, you are not going to be naturally attracted to conservatism. We are constantly under criticism, uh, very often unfair, but maybe sometimes fair. Maybe sometimes the opposition has a fair point. And this idea of where, why you, you know, decide, well, I, if you're not taking flack, you're not over the target, you know, this kind of mentality. Um, you can kind of see it in Steve King year by year um, with his bizarre description of 
uh, illegal immigrants running across the border with calf muscles the size of grapefruits. By the way, great. There's something quasi-erotic about that, that fruit comparison. I, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at the calf muscles of illegal immigrants, but Steve King had spent a lot of time examining them closely and coming up with just the right fruit uh, comparison to make for that. Um, and, and he just seemed to, you know, kept finding new ways to do it, to get himself in trouble. Um, he, he, you know, what was fascinating is that he kept doing these interviews. He kept, you know, he would do something. He would get, uh, he would go out onto a, a, a long branch. He would, you know, start sawing away. He'd find himself in trouble. The rest of the party would, you know, uh, other conservatives who probably voted similarly to King would say, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't defend these comments. I can't stand by him on this. And he just kept on doing it. And eventually it caught up with him in a way that uh, uh, led to the fact that people who were in his district just got tired of it. And, you know, I am uh, always believe in the need for new blood every now and then. I think we are probably long overdue in the case of this district. Uh, as for Valerie Plame, there, there's, I haven't taken enough time to enjoy the defeat of Valerie Plame. Um, the entire account of her unmasking is a rather repugnant one. I mean, she shouldn't have been unmasked, but the, you know, who did it was never all, you know, eventually became very clear. It was Richard Armitage at the State Department. Richard Armitage was the right-hand man to Colin Powell, and Colin Powell was liked by uh, the mainstream media largely. He was seen as the good one in the Bush administration. Armitage was one of his buddies. And once it came out that this was the source for Robert Novak, a good portion of the world, including Valerie Plain, didn't want to acknowledge that. They had decided Scooter Libby and Dick Cheney were the villains of this story, and they weren't going to change what they were saying just because the facts happened to be different. Um, I found, I remember the movie they made about her was this ludicrously fictionalized version in which, uh, I think there were like car chases and stuff. I mean, it was the ultimate Hollywoodization of something. Joe Wilson passed away. I feel very, you know, I'm sure it's been uh, difficult to lose a spouse, but, you know, Plame decided that she was not done with her being in public life and that she would go out and she would run for Congress. And a short, you know, right around that time, she'd had the issue of retweeting that article, which was pretty explicitly anti-Semitic, the Jews start our wars, yada, yada, yada. Now, if she had genuinely not read it, if she'd read the headline, liked the headline, and decided I wanted to retweet that out, you know, there are worse sins in the world and saying, hey, I recommended this to people. I didn't really read it. I shouldn't have done that. But she doubled down. She insisted that it was right. She insisted it was fair. She insisted everybody was claiming anti-Semitism was either part of the Jewish conspiracy or, or you know, uh, allied with it or something like that. And only after a couple of days did she say, yeah, okay, I guess some of the rhetoric in this, in this article is not acceptable. Um, Again, but the, but, you know, I, I guess she was technically a senior officer and involved in trying to go out and make contacts, et cetera. But don't we expect people at the CIA to have good analytical abilities, Greg? You insert all the gifts of, you had one job. You know, The ability to read articles and get the gist of them is, is kind of an important one. It was not, you know, that uh, inability, we, we already have enough problems with that in Congress. There was no particular need to add it. But you look, look at this and you're like, well, okay, she's a celebrity. Everybody else is just some fairly lesser known New Mexico Democrats. Maybe she's going to be able to use her name recognition and her association with opposition to the Bush administration as a way to get elected to Congress in 2020. Well, she can't. And uh, to quote the musical Hamilton, Greg, that's one less thing to worry about. Yeah, see, George W. Bush isn't the bad guy anymore. 
you know, if she had run in 2008 or something, it might have worked a little bit. But a lot now, of folks on the left say he's a statesman now. Yeah, that, yeah. that's right. A lot of new, how could you how could you attack one of America's greatest living statesmen like that? A lot of newfound respect for uh, George W. Bush on the left lately, and I'm not even sure uh, she's from New Mexico. I think she, they just decided to retire out there. She was actually born in Alaska, but uh, I don't know if folks saw her as a. Uh, Johnny come lately as a political figure, maybe just uh, parachuting in there to be a political candidate. But uh, nonetheless, uh, no Steve King on the ballot come November, no Valerie Plame on the ballot come November. All right, but come November, uh, coronavirus could be an issue and uh, the response to it and, and so forth. And we'll actually be talking about that in the next martini. But in the meantime, uh, there's no doubt that a lot of people are heroes as a result of this. Those are the doctors, the nurses, the other medical professionals who not only uh, risk their own health and their own lives, but uh, sacrifice time with their families, sometimes uh, stayed in separate places or, or set up a cot in the garage just to make sure that they protected their families and did everything they could to protect you and your family. Um, and so when the world changed overnight and doctors and nurses and other medical professionals immediately ran to the crisis, they were there when we needed them. And now uh, there are still cases of this uh, that they need to respond to. And now that a lot of these elective procedures and, and the ban on those are, has been lifted, uh, they're getting back to the, the things that they've always done. So they're going to stay busy and we still need them a lot. They sacrifice a lot. And now not only can we appreciate them, we can actually do something about it by getting them figs. Figs is an amazing company that's had the backs of these amazing professionals since 2013. Figs creates ridiculously soft, modern scrubs that helps healthcare workers look good, feel good, and perform at their very best. In response to COVID-19, Figs has donated more than 30,000 sets of scrubs to hospitals across the country. They have donated more than $100,000 to the Frontline Responders Fund to help ship personal protective equipment and supplies, and they've sent hundreds of care packages to those who need it most. They've also created their own three-layer protective face mask and utilize their supply chain to produce millions of N95 masks and more personal protective equipment. FIGS will continue to do whatever it takes to support healthcare workers during this challenging time. And as I said, I've had the chance to uh, test out some of their apparel. Uh, love the socks. Really love the active wear jacket as well. Keeps you warm. It's lightweight, uh, but uh, whether you're down in the 40 degrees or up to the 60s, it's very comfortable. Got a lot of pockets, which is not only convenient for people like us, but it's convenient for doctors, especially because they have to carry so many different things, whether it's stethoscopes, uh, thermometers, flashlights, uh, whatever those things are called, where they look in your eyes and ears, otoscopes maybe. Nonetheless, uh, this gear really, really helps. It's antimicrobial, which is always very good, not just in a pandemic, but anytime. Uh, they also have a lot of proprietary functionality. They got moisture wicking, four-way stretch, on and on and on. And today it's more important than ever to recognize all the selfless medical professionals in our lives. So whether you're one of these amazing, awesome humans, or you're someone who just wants to say thank you with a set of scrubs, Figs has your back and is offering listeners of the Three Martini Lunch 15% off for a limited time. Just go to wearfigs.com, W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S.com, and enter the code MARTINI15. That's MARTINI15 at checkout. All right, Jim, speaking of coronavirus and the response, given what we've seen in response to these massive protests in the past week, You've got us thinking. We talked about this a little bit yesterday where Bill de Blasio was uh, all in favor of doing everything possible to facilitate the protests, but not so much anything else. In fact, just yesterday, the NYPD was clearing Jewish families out of a park in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn because, you know, social distancing. So 
what exactly is happening here? I've seen a couple different things. I, yesterday, I noticed this tweet from NPR. Dozens of public health and disease experts have signed an open letter in support of the nationwide anti-racism protests. Quote, white supremacy is a lethal public health issue that predates and contributes to COVID-19, they wrote. Uh, and so the question has to come, because we saw the reaction to people protesting state capitals, much smaller crowds in most cases, uh, to open back up, let us uh, open our businesses, get back together with each other. And they were treated as pariahs, of course. Over at the New York Post, you got Carol Markowitz saying, if protesters can march, why can't businesses open? After all, they're getting destroyed in some of these cities. You should at least be able to be open. So, Jim, we talked yesterday about how de Blasio might have been just lording his power over you know, synagogues and, and churches and, and other folks who wanted to just get back to normal life while rolling out the red carpet for the demonstrators who are clearly not social distancing. So just how much of the past couple of months has been politicians exercising power just because they can? Yeah, I was going to say, Greg, in addition to de Blasio, who's probably the worst, uh, well, I can, I can just stop the sentence right there. Blasio's <laughs> the worst. Uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy also made comments in the vein of, well, of course I'm going to be enforcing quarantine restrictions and restrictions on large gatherings, but the protests against the police are different. Um, there was a group of medical experts who wrote an open letter that basically said local governments should not break up crowded demonstrations quote, under the guise of maintaining public health. What if they genuinely want to protect public health? Like, you know, oh, you're only using it as an excuse because you want to break up these, uh, these protests. Well, what if they genuinely think that these protests are at, a, at risk? Um, I'm working on a piece for this in our for National Review. You're going to see, you know, you don't have to look very hard. You saw it in New York City. You saw this in Washington, D.C. You saw this in uh, uh, Hollywood. You saw in Houston, there was a gathering that said tens of thousands of people. And a good portion of these people are wearing masks. That's the good sign. And then they're outdoors. That's another good factor. But a lot of them, they're shoulder to shoulder, right? They're really standing close together. And of course, everyone's shouting or sometimes they're singing. These are all things that are uh, likely to enhance it. So we were going to have one of two bad scenarios are going to come to pass. Bad scenario number one is that actually, no, not much has changed with the coronavirus at all. And that all of these activities of the past week have indeed been very dangerous and they have spread the coronavirus. And it is worth noting at this point um, that uh, the linebacker, linebacker for Oklahoma State University, his first name is easy to pronounce. It's Amen. His last name is Agbongbemiga. Uh, he said on Twitter that he attended a protest in Tulsa. He was trying to be protective of himself, but he has tested positive for COVID-19. Now, I don't know if he is 100% certain he caught it at the protest, but certainly it's a, within the realm of possibility. Uh, also worth noting in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, an arrested protester tested positive for the coronavirus. You get together thousands of people, tens of thousands of people in, in large cities, particularly New York City, but basically in any large city, there's a good chance somebody in that crowd has the coronavirus. Now, maybe all the protective measures that were taken will, will mitigate the spread, Maybe not. And we'll probably know in about two to three weeks. And if, you know, so bad scenario number one is that actually, yes, there, you know, all these things we've seen the last week have been tremendously dangerous. They have spread the coronavirus. We're going to have more cases. Thankfully, most of the people in the crowd are pretty young. They probably will get through this okay. But obviously, you don't want anybody to get the coronavirus if they can help it because, you know, everyone's willing to have a case of somebody where they end up with the uh, uh, you know, significant damage to their lungs or, or you know, even the, you know, they even succumb to it. Uh, thankfully, most people are not going to succumb to this, but, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like this is a pleasant experience for anybody to get. Um, 
Now, the other possibility, though, is that we don't see a big spike in these cases. And if there is no big spike in these cases, a lot of people, first of all, I, I think it's safe to say that, you know, the, the restrictions on crowd gatherings are effectively shut down, whether or not local officials want to recognize it or not. People now believe that, okay, well, if it's not an effect for the protests, it should be in, in effect for me. Um, and then the next question is going to be, well, okay, if there wasn't any big spread at a big gathering in New York or Washington or something like that, why can't you have your local public pool open? Why can't you have a summer concert series? Why can't you have baseball games? Why would those events be significantly more risky than getting together in a public square and chanting at police officers? Um, oh, by the way, Greg, maybe it makes sense to have a political convention. <laughs> we, just, we just saw the, yesterday President Trump announced they will not be holding it in Charlotte. This is kind of the thrust of the piece that I'm writing. Um, look, it's possible that Roy Cooper, the governor of North Carolina, is correct, and that in late August, the risk of people catching coronavirus by gathering in the Spectrum Center, that's what they're calling the basketball arena down there these days, um, then, then maybe that will be too risky. But right now, we don't know, and we just saw gatherings of, it looked like several thousand people, maybe even more than 10,000 people, in a big protest organized by uh, the, NAAC, the NAACP in Charlotte. So I don't understand why one gathering would be considered dangerous and the other one would not, and one would have to be barred, but the other one would not. Uh, and here's the thing. If it passes that, you know, obviously we're hoping people don't get sick. But if that comes to pass, a lot of people will conclude these quarantines never needed to be in place, that there was never significant risk of, from catching it in large crowds, which, by the way, I don't think was, uh, I don't think that's the case. Certainly not earlier in the year. Uh, in winter, viruses are, you know, maybe mitigated by sunlight, maybe mitigated by, by warm temperatures. But, uh, you know, by and large, you want to avoid crowds when there's a contagious disease around. Because, you know, somebody in there is probably not washing their hands. Somebody in that crowd is coughing into their hand and, you know, shaking hands or touching things that other people are touching or something like that. Um, everything we've been told about this virus did not suddenly get repealed because a lot of people were angry about the actions of the, of the police in Minneapolis. But a lot of people kind of decided that's the case. And one way or another, we're either going to have a spike in coronavirus cases or a collapse in public faith in what public health experts were telling them for the past couple of months. Pick your poison, America. Yeah, we'll find out very soon, uh, next couple of weeks. Like you said, I think based on what we've seen so far from the states that opened up at the beginning of May, there's probably quite a few areas of the country that probably could have opened up at the same time. The hottest of the hot spots, you can understand going a little bit longer, but uh, a lot of things probably could have opened up quite a bit sooner and uh, more businesses could have been saved. Jim, let's move on to our final martini, our crazy martini, and it still deals with coronavirus. And for the past gosh, almost five months now, the World Health Organization has basically been just giving gushing praise to the People's Republic of China for how quickly they've responded, how transparent they've been, and just, gosh, what a great member of the international community they are. Well, maybe not so much. Associated Press. Throughout January, the World Health Organization publicly praised China for what it called a speedy response to the new coronavirus. It repeatedly thanked the Chinese government for sharing the genetic map of the virus immediately and said its work and commitment to transparency were, quote, very impressive and beyond words. But behind the scenes, it was a much different story. One of the significant delays by China and considerable frustration among World Health Organization officials over not getting the information they needed to fight the spread of the deadly virus the Associated Press has found. Despite the plaudits, China, in fact, sat on releasing the genetic map or genome of the virus for more than a week after three different government labs had fully decoded the information. 
Tight controls on information and competition within the Chinese public health system were to blame, according to dozens of interviews and internal documents. So, Jim, this is a fantastic opportunity for you to say, I told you so. So go ahead. Well, world, I told you so. No, a lot of people <laughs> told people so. And, and I want to begin, first of all, by saying kind of a good aspect of this crazy martini. The Associated Press did some really good shoe leather reporting on this. They really, this was a good deep dive, very investigative, clearly involved people uh, who did not want to be quoted on the record, but who were uncomfortable with the decisions of who from within the organization. And it, it's somewhat reassuring to learn that there were some people within the organization who did not feel world, the World Health Organization was doing its job. That they were doing whatever was necessary to stay on the good side of Xi Jinping. The bad news is, is that all of that internal dissent didn't amount to anything. Uh, that, that in the end, Dr. Tedros still went out and said, oh, no, what Beijing is doing is hunky-dory, and boy, they're just swell, and they're so cooperative, and their information is so great. And people inside the WHO knew, no, that wasn't the case. We can insert, uh, insert the gif of, you know, you had one job. If, if the World Health Organization cannot be counted upon to provide accurate speedy, needed information about contagious, dangerous menaces to public health, what is it there for? It, it is not the United Nations. It is not there to promote cooperation between governments. It is not there to ensure that China uh, doesn't get unfairly criticized, although they certainly have seemed, sounded like that in the last couple of months. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I see the arguments that you should, the United States should not cut off world funding to the World Health Organization in, in the middle of the pandemic. But the problem is that the World Health Organization cannot continue to operate the way it is. The, 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 I'd like to think that even the most staunch defenders of WHO would look at it and say, okay, they fouled up. And I could use another word there. Right? They, they you know, totally messed up with their, their core mission. If they can't do that, if there's not a change in leadership, if there's not an indication that they recognize how badly they messed up and how much they need to do better in the future for the organization to have any value, then why should the United States be a member of this? What is the point of being part of an organization that will help cover up contagious diseases instead of helping warn the world about them? And so you start wondering, you know, every once in a while when, when people really get frustrated with the... Uh, uh, with the uh, United Nations or other international institutions, somebody will make a point that, you know, do, do we really need to be a member of that? What is the point of it? Uh, if all they sit and do is dither when the world has a major problem, maybe we need a, you know, United Democracies organization. Um, you know, NATO seems to be a much more, much more effective, or at least it can be more effective, in part because everybody is more or less on the same page, although I think that's probably deteriorating year by year. Thanks a lot, Turkey. Um, you look at the five eyes, the five English-speaking countries that are very open about op intelligence sharing. Um, United States, Britain, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. Are they the fifth beetle? I'm trying to remember. I think so, but uh, keep going. <laughs> the, the four eyes that we're certain about, and that fifth one we're pretty sure, you know. Um, there's no formal treaty. There's no big, grand five eyes building in Manhattan. This is just like-minded governments saying, hey, we're going to help each other out when we think we can uh, do each other some good. Something like that for world health, for, for health, might make more sense than being part of a big international bureaucracy that has been taken hostage effectively by the whims of China. Um, I'd like to see that kind of discussion going on. Maybe that's a long-term decision, not the sort of thing that can be wrapped up in a couple of months. But uh, I think it is what is necessary because, well, and, it's, it, and apparently there's some allies on the inside of who 
who are look at what they've done in the last couple months and who aren't happy about it. But again, I don't know if muttering off the record to, uh, uh, or without being quoted by name to the Associated Press is really going to bring any serious change to that very troubled organization. So, Jim, do you think this might be the beginning of uh, the World Health Organization uh, coming to grovel for U.S. dollars since we've decided we're not going to fund them anymore? I mean, I'm sure that's a pretty big chunk of their funding. It is, but you also figure if you're Dr. Tedros, a fight with Trump is exactly what you want, right? I mean, you can go to almost any other world government and say, see, look at these unreasonable Americans. Clearly, you guys could give us more money. And, and some might, some might not. I think that would, I think would probably play very effectively with a whole bunch of uh, European countries and, you know, probably Canada as well. By the way, you're correct on the five eyes. Uh, Canada was the fifth. It's easy to forget Canada sometimes. Well, I mean, so- everyone knows about the <laughs> legendary effectiveness of Canadian intelligence. I love the Canadian government. They were very nice when I gave that speech over in Austria. So I tease because I love dear Canadians. We don't like your prime minister very much, but uh, overall, you're good neighbors. We're good neighbors. I, I just fear, you know, the Canadian Jacques Bond in, in flannel standing at the foot of my desk. <laughs> or standing at the foot of my bed as I wake up in the middle of the night. We heard what you said there, eh? Oh, man. Hey, but they're good neighbors. You know, they cut their grass. They, uh, they do what they need to do. They don't uh, have loud parties at night too often. Maybe. Oh, look, you know, all in all, my philosophy can be described as being anti-Putin and pro-Putin. <laughs> Jim, happy Wednesday. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to uh, do something nice for those amazing people on the front lines of this pandemic and who take care of you all the time. Anyway, doctors, nurses, other medical professionals with figs. Uh, right now, you can go to wearfigs.com and get 15% off when you enter Martini15 at checkout. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. Get us on those government surveillance devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast and tune in again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.